How's it going, guys? You're listening to the Fretboard Confessional. My name is Cooper Greenberg. And I'm Chris McKee. You know, this is the podcast where we talk all things guitars and all things everything else, too. It's just a podcast. We're just, just doing podcast. podcasts. Uh, we're over here at Alamo Music Center in San Antonio, Texas, because we work here. And they're our sponsor. Yeah, they're our sponsor. Permanently. Classic. So we're just, uh, you know, we're getting back in here. We had Patrick Marr in here uh, last time because Chris was out and Chris is back. And we're just, we got to catch up, dude. Yay. And so, first of all, I want to hear your thoughts on the Gibson Theodore. No, first of all, let's talk about your radio voice that you turn on the minute that you do the podcast. How's it going, guys? This really is, like it. You thank need you. To give the weather. I was an intern at NPR. Were you really? No, I wish, dude. That'd that would be kind of cool. That could be a cool job. I think my son has the coolest, like, young person job, like, in your 20s. Yeah. Because he does construction work for the zoo. So he builds the animals. He's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they come over in parts, dude. Uh, he, sends, he shows me these photos of like uh, a camel right over his head, you know, um, or he was working on something and a vulture bit him in the butt, you know. Really? Yeah, he's got photos when he was working on one thing. Because he got that dead ass. There you go. Uh, <laughs> one of the <laughs> takes after his pops. Um, one of the jaguars was like uh, stalking him through the nets one day, oh, you know. That's. So. Fun stuff. That's a cool job. But NPR scary cool too. Yeah. So yeah, Gibson Theodore. We saw it, and <laughs> we won't see it. But <laughs> what do you think about that one? <sighs> well, I think there was a reason that it was never produced. <clears throat> um, you know, and I think there's a reason that now that it is being produced, Gibson's only doing it in the custom shop in a limited number. Yeah. Um, which is what we would. I mean, there's nothing outside of the guitar to limit the numbers. So uh, what is it? That's that's artificial limit uh, limiting, yeah. you know, yeah. of things. So I think artificial constraints. So, you know, if you haven't seen the guitar, go look up the Gibson Theodore. It was a design created by Ted McCarty, mm-hmm. I think in the 50s, correct? 57, I think I read. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a tulip shape. They put out three models, uh, like, you know, three different colors, basically, mm-hmm. but it's a it's an interesting guitar, and it brings me to my next one, which I don't know if you saw, the Leo Scala Artisan Collection. I did not see the Scala Artisan so Collection. So let me, let me run this down for you. So are you going to pull up a photo? I'm, I'm searching it now, yeah. Um, try to see it without prices attached. Like, go to a... Because they definitely did not put the price on These there. Are, this is a whole line of guitars, right? It was 10 guitars total. Um, and they brought in Leo Scala, a, uh, master builder of guitars to do a 10 guitar run of flying V's. And he, you know, as a builder, one of his things is like motorcycle type mm-hmm. aesthetics. So he did three different kind of series within the series. And then one that was a one-off, but they were all Karina body flying V's. They had the classic uh, line, which was, you know, white, black, and metal pit guard. Every single one was different of the ten. But the classic line was three. Then the hybrid line, which you could string through or top load. Um, and then the 777, which were Bigsby models on flying Vs. And then I believe it was called the Serif, which did you, you got a photo? Uh-huh. Did you get the price? Uh, no, I, okay, I haven't good. seen the price yet, but so, I'm... I'm imagining something in my mind yeah so there's 10 guitars each one was different i thought it was interesting because on the hybrid they had the top load or the string through and they strung them all differently from the factory so one of them went three and three top load and string through um you know every pit guard was different all of the knobs were like specially uh you know fabricated by Mm -hmm. leo this uh the serif had rubies in it they put rubies in this guitar, and it had kind of a Pontiac pit guard on it and stuff. Yeah, Pontiac, the car brand that is no longer around. Yeah. They had okay. their last hurrah with Breaking Bad. Um, so, we talked Theodore. Those mm-hmm. were about five grand. Um, how much do you think those were With rubies? $50,000? The, the Classic Series started at... Fifteen thousand, okay. and with the ruby one, I believe it was forty-five thousand dollars. Yeah, that sounds about right. See, I remember 
uh, Guild's acoustic custom shop when uh, Ren Ferguson was there, mm-hmm. did the Monarch mm-hmm. guitars yeah. uh, with diamonds in the headstock. Um, and those for the tone, dude. Fifty thousand dollars. Literally cuts um, through the mix. Yeah, I mean these are guitars that are more art than guitar. Yeah, you know, guitar. So <laughs> guitar. The, <laughs> the thing is, yeah. guitar. Guitar. Yeah, and uh, these are these are collector pieces. However, uh, they got resources being attached to Theodore's yeah. and Leo Scala uh, flying V's made of Carina. Uh, and this brings me to the point that I wanted to bring up with you today and hear your thoughts on, one, what are they doing? Two, do you think that they're alienating themselves from a younger audience? Because we, I mentioned it to you before, but there was a video I watched, uh, you know, talking about every young musician at Coachella was playing a Fender. Right. They put the Jagstangs and the leads and the Noventas and stuff into the hands of a bunch of young artists and they're making an effort with guitars that probably, you know, maybe moved slower than the, you know, their American strats and Mm -hmm. player strats, all that stuff. But they're at least saying, Hey, go play this. And some kid is going to see that artist play and and like what they're playing and want that guitar. No kid is going to go to Coachella and see any or watch, you know, on YouTube from Coachella performances because, why would a kid go to Coachella? Right. But um, they're not going to see anybody playing the Serif Flying V Carina and be like, oh, that's my guitar, man. Yeah. So why why do you think Gibson doesn't seem concerned with marketing themselves to younger people? They should be concerned. I think they're not concerned because they know what their demographic currently is. They're leaning into that demographic and they're producing guitars that are extremely high margin for them. Mm-hmm. Um I think there's a number of things that Gibson's doing that if you if you peer through it, it's very telling. So for one, these guitars, these Scala guitars, were uh, the Flying Vs anyway, were only available through the Gibson Garage. Mm-hmm. Now in the past, some of those Scala guitars were available through Chicago Music Exchange. Great guys, like the CME guys a lot. Um, I've enjoyed some Hattie Bs in Nashville with them, so good, good, but good bunch of guys. Yeah. Um, the fact that Gibson has now created this Gibson garage in Nashville, um, and I have opinions on it. I think yeah. doing that and, and stocking it in the midst of the pandemic when they couldn't get guitars to their dealers, they literally had guitars swinging overhead um, on conveyor belts in the Gibson garage at launch. Um, I think that speaks to priority um, as a dealer. I, you know, I don't like that. Yeah. You know, I, I, but from a business standpoint, I get what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I spoke with a friend of ours, uh, today who was recently in the Gibson garage and he talked about some of the stuff that they have in their vault, like Carlos Santana's original boogie, you know, cause they now own yeah. boogie, uh, which is cool. You know, if they're making it kind of a Gibson Mecca for you to visit in Nashville, I think that's awesome because one of the things I lamented when I was in Nashville one time was that um, you couldn't visit the Gibson factory like you could so many other factories. Yeah. And in the old Opry Mills Mall, they'd had a thing that was set up at one point that they then closed down. It was a Gibson showcase. Yeah. And you could watch their artisans build, like, kind of do custom crafting on, on stuff. Yeah. Um, taking a chisel and carving ornate designs into wood and, and things like that. Yeah. I think that was very cool. Uh, they've done that at NAM before. Um, yeah. I'd love to see more of that. I think a manufacturer having something like that for the public is a very cool thing for them. The fact that they're using the Gibson Garage as an outlet for these Scala Flying Vs and not trying to sell them through any dealer, uh, I think is twofold. One, it speaks to uh, there would be very few dealers that would take the risk of purchasing those. There are dealers that will always yeah. get that kind of stuff and, and try to uh, you know, be that specialty shop. That's, a, I think, an increasingly difficult business proposition today to, to be that boutique shop mm-hmm. um, that you're going to try to find that one or two person, 
you know, that's going to buy this guitar for their collection. Yeah. Um, and those shops are very good at it. You know, they go about and they build that clientele. So there's a lot of things about Gibson doing it. One, they're taking away from dealers who ha- who have been specialized at that, not for just Gibson, but across the board. They may be doing that for a number of reasons. Primarily, I think they want to control the narrative. We see a lot of companies struggling in the age of social media with dealers like us, uh, basically companies that sell your product but also have their own voice and you can't necessarily control their opinion on things. Um, And just the regular buying public. Anybody now can go on social media. They can do a YouTube, Instagram, a TikTok, and give their opinion about a Gibson guitar. And manufacturers find that to be difficult um, and uncomfortable. So they're going to sell through there. Um, more power to them. Good luck. Because, again, now you ha- you're faced with the marketing standpoint or, or difficulty of trying to find that bu- buyer that the dealers that specialize in this stuff would have known. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of marketing about these guitars. But how much do they actually have in it? Um, the whole idea of, like, the, the Halo product is important. You know, you, you'll have this incredible art piece, right? People will get in and look at it, and then they'll buy something else. It's, it's part of that idea, too. Yeah. Um, and then their margin's insane. So to your original question, what is Gibson doing? Gibson is marketing to the blues lawyers, right? This is, the, this is a derogatory term that we use in our industry of people with discretionary income that can buy expensive guitars that can't play them well. And then there's me. Who does the same thing, but am not a lawyer and don't have the money. So, you ever seen that photo? It's like <laughs> a photo of like some super nice guitar, and it's like good player, great dentist. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's fine, right? I think you know. I'll put it in a different context. We we talked about guitars and cars are always you know typically integrated. In Texas, guns is another one. Watches, right? You don't have to be a world class racing car driver to buy a world-class sports car or race car, right? You can go track days. You can enjoy it. You don't have to be the best guy out there. You you qualify for that club because of your income. Yeah. Right? Same thing with guitars. If you enjoy music and guitar and maybe you idolize a particular musician or something and you have the means to buy a very expensive custom shop instrument, then more power to you. My only complaint is play it. Like I, yeah. I love it when people buy that and learn, even if they don't play well, enjoy the instrument for what it is. So I think Gibson recognizes that that's a big demographic of people who buy their guitars. Uh, increasingly so. Yeah. I think that's why the, the Theodore exists. Yeah. You know, and this is just my opinion. If Gibson really thinks that's a cool guitar, then put it in a production. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a block of maple. It's like two pieces of maple right. with some P90s. Nothing and about its construction warrants its price tag. Yeah. You know, about outside of it being unique in custom shop. There's nothing about it that would... Like, if you, if you show me like a Super 400, okay, they're super expensive. But, I mean, their construction is difficult, yeah. you know, and, and stellar. You know, if you show me a extremely difficult to make hollow body guitar that is just the upper echelon then its price tag is justified there is not a whole lot of difference between the theodore and an sg from yeah. a construction standpoint and so its price is simply because it's a limited edition model built in the custom shop and that right there tells you it's not for a musician it's for a collector so so we were talking earlier today about generation collection mm-hmm its name implies this is the Gibson for a new generation, mm-hmm. um, and it's a modern acoustic guitar that's taken inspiration from, you know, classic models, J45, SJ200, L-double-O, songwriter, not a classic model, but a good model, you know. Um, and I feel like it still, with the type of marketing, it still caters towards an older player that really wants a Gibson and gets their Gibson. It's affordable and everything, but something like the Theodore, what if you spin that in the direction of this is a weird, cool new body shape. It's super affordable and it's a great way to get in. What does Gibson's like it, if you're running marketing and product development for Gibson, how do you create something 
that's going to be attractive for young people or not even young people, but just people that are getting into it for the first time and want something new. Is it a new body style or is it just a better made affordable version of something that already exists in their lineup? It's a difficult conundrum when you're dealing with a historic brand like Gibson or Fender or Martin, right? We've talked about this in some of our YouTube videos that they're somewhat pigeonholed into being who they are because so much of their legacy resides on their history so that when Gibson produces something new like the generation collection you have a lot of people that are the old school Gibson fans that come out with you know torches and pitchforks and say there's a hole in the side of the guitar and I don't like this because it's different even if everything else about the guitar is otherwise very traditional to their designs Um, you also have the same thing when they try to innovate Uh, maybe in the wrong way, like they've done in the past. So when they were uh, under previous leadership, you know, they tried the robotic tuners. Um, Classic. In a few different iterations, right? There was the Robot SG, uh, which was a lot of technology in a guitar. I'm going to tell you a story. We had a customer who said, hey, I've got one of these SGs I bought on clearance at Guitar Center, and it's got those robotic tuners and I want you to take them off because I had done this for a number of people who had like the 2014, 2015 G4s or mini E-Tune yeah. you know, robotic tuners. And you could swap them out. You could take them off and you could put on traditional tuners. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do that for you. So he brings it by. But this is not that. This is a robot SG. It had a computer ribbon cable running from the body through the neck to the headstock. And it, the whole system was integrated with onboard controls around your knobs yeah. where you could switch to your tuning and all what, yeah. what your tuning was. And it would retune the guitar into drop D or bear, whatever, you know. Um, and so you couldn't just swap out your tuners. This is like you bought it like this. The Firebird X's, right, is the one that they bulldozed because they had so many that they couldn't sell. And they literally had to run over them and destroy them in order to have the tax write-off. So you can't say that Gibson hasn't tried to create new body shapes or changes to modernize, particularly the electric guitar, in order to reach a younger playing audience. Uh, They have. I think they just went about doing those things the wrong way, and they created instruments that didn't resonate with people. Yeah. Um, and so their conundrum right now is this, and this is the criticism. This is a question that Red Shoal and and you know uh, many others yeah, on YouTube yeah. are talking about: is is Gibson losing a generation of players? They might be, and they did before. The 1980s was not a stellar time for Gibson. You look at most of the bands; they weren't playing Fender very much either. But there was some of that. Yeah. I mean, you had some of your like groups, like your Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, that were playing Rickenbackers and Fenders and stuff. But uh, uh, for guitar guys, it was uh, it was Charvels and Jacksons and Ibanezes and yeah. Kramer Kramers, right? And so Gibson, right? They brought back Kramer, yeah, and they're trying to to utilize Kramer, but not in that way. So there's a thing in marketing called the 30-year cycle. And the 30-year cycle basically means that the people who were adolescents 30 years ago are now at a place where they have buying power. And so companies that produce goods will begin to create retro-influenced things to appeal to these 30-something-year-olds or 40-something-year-olds of what they were into when they were like preteens and teens. Mm-hmm. So and where was Gibson in the nineties? So, so where was Gibson in the nineties is a great, great question. You know, we've, for me, Gibson wasn't a huge brand that I was looking at in the nineties. Yeah. You know, I, I was born in 81. So late eighties, early nineties is that era. Right. Uh, which will be interesting because some of the theories about this 30 year rule means that Apple may start producing computers that harken back to the colors and and the the yeah. looks that they were doing back then. Uh, we're seeing it in some video games. You know, that you'll get retro colored consoles that mm-hmm. look like a Super Nintendo. Or well, something. yeah, the I mean, Akai did the MPC two thousand, and right. you know, it's 
it's a brand new NPC just in a different box. Right. You know, and it sold out immediately. Right. So Fender was already doing some of this stuff with like the leads. Leads, right? the HM Strat. The Jack Stank, right? Jack That's Stank's, a 90s guitar. Yeah. The first time I saw on TikTok, check out this oldie and they started playing Nirvana. I had to like, wait, go, huh? But when I was a kid in the 80s, an oldie was from the 50s, and so the, the, it tracks. That's wild. But give me a break. Nirvana is an oldie? Come on. No. Yeah. I'm, so I just think, you know, because I'm giving a lot of credit to Fender, I think a lot of people in this conversation are using Fender as the example. They've done things that haven't hit probably as the, hard as they thought they would recently. Any company that is really going to innovate is going to make as many misses as the, more misses actually than they do hits. People will hold Taylor out, right, as like this incredibly well marketed acoustic guitar company, right? They've had misses. Their solid body electric guitars, huge miss, which I think was a big timing issue. Yeah. Right? They introduced them right when electric guitars fell off the cliff sales wise. They got rid of them right before electric guitars rebounded. Bad yeah. luck. They'll probably come out with an electric again, and it'll probably be better than those. They also did acoustic-oriented guitars with no electronics, with special bracing to really accentuate the acoustic experience. You know, strip down the 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 binding and the inlay and the electronics and all that stuff, and just focus on acoustics. And guess what people did? They bought those, but then they wanted the inlay and the acoustics, so they just got rid of the brand or that that line rather. What was that you know? line called? Uh, it was it was the acoustic line. So at this time, it was the Simple. early 2000s. You had acoustic electric and acoustic tailors. Yeah. The acoustic electric didn't have these changes to the bracing, uh, which was like a CV route and some other adjustments to the the X the scalloped X bracing. And they didn't have pickups. I'm sorry. The acoustic electrics didn't have changes to the bracing. They did have electronics, and then they were what we would typically see from Taylor, like a 614 or an 814 looked like what you'd expect it to. On the acoustic side. You didn't follow that. You had changes to the bracing to make it sound as be- as good acoustically as possible. Electronics were an option, and then it was stripped down. It was dot inlay and and basic, you know, kind yeah. of uh, aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And you had a GS8 or a GA8, and all that was was the 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 combinations of wood and the body shape, right? It didn't sell well because at the end of the day, people wanted the best of both worlds yeah so what did taylor do they got rid of that line they incorporated it all together which in my opinion in retrospect that's what they should have done to begin with fender has come out with how many different guitars over the years that failed back in the late 90s early 2000s they had the Showmasters. have you ever seen one of those Mm-mm. okay figured maple carved top stratocaster without a pick guard and top loaded uh direct mounted pickups does that sound cool Yes. Yeah, they didn't sell. They did the Espirit with Robin Ford, which I would love to own. Uh, it's like the most Gibson-style Fender you've ever seen. They play amazingly. They sound amazing. They go for big bucks on reverb. Commercial failure. Okay? Yeah. Jazzmaster was a failure. Jaguar was a failure. The leads didn't go anywhere. They reproduced the leads. They didn't go anywhere. You know. But here's the secret with Fender. One, they have really good artist relations. They spend a ton of money on marketing. They have a chief marketing officer. I'm Their marketing team is probably 10 times the size of Gibson's marketing team. And they're really focusing on young artist relations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have an artist like Joe Bonamassa that supports both Fender and Gibson, that's great. But his demographic is skewing older and older and older. Yeah. If that's your demographic, then what you can do is sell them high-margin instruments where you make a lot of money. That's what Gibson's doing. But they have to figure out a way to get that younger crowd. They're yeah. trying it with Epiphone. The the Their new tagline is a guitar for every stage. Yeah. That's specifically geared toward a younger audience to have a really well-produced, affordable instrument. And they're good guitars. Yeah. But how do you get it into the psyche? Well, for better or for worse, people buy what they see artists playing mm-hmm. yeah. you know i'll tell you the other thing with gibson that surprised me watch the cma awards and you're mostly going to see prs yeah and fender instead of gibson which is weird because that's nashville man yeah it's it's pretty wild i think about too like the artists that 
not only artist relation wise, but the artists that these companies are giving signature lines or, you know, signature guitar, sure. um, you know, Fender at the same time when Gibson is doing Slash and Sher- mm-hmm. Cheryl Crow, Fender's over here doing Shawn Mendes. Right. And it's Shawn Mendes. most her. Yeah, exactly. And most uh, people that are Gibson buyers probably don't even know who her or Shawn right. Mendes are. But there's plenty of people that then there's the Billboard Awards and both of them are on there playing their signature Fender. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty wild, man. I I would love to see how, one, you make an affordable Gibson headstock Les Paul that's not, you know, a tribute or a studio or how you retool those series to be something that grabs the attention of younger people. Because I think they're still geared towards the guy that wants a standard 60s yeah. that only wants to spend $1,500. I don't I don't think that you have to lower the price necessarily. Yeah. Um, because, well, the Fender's pricing keeps going up partly, you know, because every price is going up. Um, but they've, they've got this huge range, you know, price-wise. And the guitars are arguably very similar to one another. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have... A Fender guitar that's a player series, a Fender Strat, is not that different from a uh, Pro 2. Yeah. Yeah, that's made in the U.S. Price-wise, it's over twice as much for the American-made version. But they look very similar. They've both got gloss bodies and similar hardware and so forth. The issue with uh, a Gibson, to your point, is a tribute or something that's stripped down to get it into like the eight $900 price point. It's choose binding. It's got a satin finish. It looks decidedly different than, you know, a, a Les Paul. And then if you look at it with a critical eye, there's some breakdown of where, what necessitates price. So if you go for like a, a Les Paul Special 50s in TV yellow, it also doesn't have binding. It doesn't have a carved top. It's got P90 pickups. And yet it is so much more expensive. Yeah. And so I think there is a, a, a problem in some of the pricing that they're doing. There's a problem in the fact that there's there's some kind of vulnerability from a, a demographic standpoint that other companies have seen. So a few years back, Taylor established an artist relations um, situation in Nashville, uh, specifically because if you're in Nashville, it's it's Martin or Gibson. Right, yeah. you were there. Yeah. Like, if you're gonna play acoustic guitar, or it's going to be a Martin, or it's going to be a Gibson. Yeah, Taylor need not apply. So, they've started reaching out to artists in the area. And by the way, they don't give away guitars. If you're an artist, you can apply and you can get a discount. Yeah, but they're not going to give you a guitar. And you're seeing more and more artists using Taylors. Yeah, especially with the Grand Pacific. Like, I think that was instrumental in hey, you like this sound? This plays really well. We're trying to get. It. PRS is doing the same thing. Just read it in in that trade magazine, okay? April 2022. PRS has opened up an artist relations center in Nashville. Why? Because they're trying to expand their brand to those musicians that have historically been Gibsons. Yeah. And that should be worrying to Gibson. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're actually a good example. Your question was, what, what could they do? Like, if, if someone say like I was going to go in production and marketing at Gibson. I think it's important to look at your competition and where they have had success. PRS has had success in not diluting their core line, but expanding those designs to their S2 and SE line so that you have something that's very similar in a huge range of price points while at the same time introducing new models that are aligned with artists uh, like John Mayer and um, Mark Letary, yeah, you know, and so people who are young guitar players who know who these guys are, they're like you're not buying a, a John Mayer signature guitar from Fender anymore. You're buying it from PRS, yeah, and that's I think the Silver Sky and now the SE are two of the they're in the top ten of best selling electric guitars. I just saw that yeah. right now, yeah, in yeah, the sales track, yeah. It's it's just interesting to think about how long until the 
the Gibson heritage buyers of today, not heritage guitars, you know, right. what I'm saying, I, I know what you mean. Um, it's a little confusing. Are are gone. Yeah. And then now the people that have grown up and taken their place are the ones that got the Silver Sky SE, and now they want the real deal, and now they're going into you know private stock PRS. It's like you got to plant the seed now right. for what's coming next. Um, I think it's interesting too, uh, and I will pivot a little bit with pedals mm-hmm. today because two of the biggest things we've seen come through the store and also just music, you know, effect pedal press wise have been the Tone Bender TB2W mm-hmm. and the RE202 or RE2, both from Boss, both either repackaging clone reissuing of classic you know the tone bender makari's deal or the classic space echo um also line six you got the re- big reissue this year the DL4, very yeah. cool uh but the most in demand effects right now from the classic companies are improvements or reissues of very old school stuff on the other hand, let's take the DL4 and the Space Echo as right there. You got a brand like Chase Bliss that put out the Habit. Have mm-hmm. you seen that pedal? Yeah. So it's like a a delay from you know outer space that if you haven't you know seen this pedal or heard it, go on YouTube, type in some of the demos. Chase Bliss themselves make really good videos on their own stuff because I don't think anybody else in the world really knows how they work except yeah. for them. But it's got like a three-minute constantly recording loop that will randomly throw phrases of what you've been playing back in. So it's like a by-yourself creating a soundscape just by playing guitar. I think for those that get these pedals, it can have almost like genre-creating power of mm-hmm. like ethereal, cool, experimental music. Well, it has to because it doesn't fit in. It anything. doesn't fit in anything else. I mean... Like you don't buy... If you're in a top 40 cover band, you don't buy that pedal to cover your current needs. Yeah. You buy that pedal to expand your creativity in something that you don't currently play. Yeah. And uh, on the other hand, you got some, like, uh, Universal Audio. Mm -hmm. They are doing a really cool kind of in-between where, yes, they're creating emulations of classic gear, but then also at the same time doing Volt interfaces with native plugins and it's high-end recording gear for less than two hundred dollars that right. you can plug your iPhone into. Um, so it's like that kind of thing. I think fosters a whole new generation. Whereas old-school brands that have the biggest market share are redoing the classics. And I'm a sucker for it because I want all of those pedals. That I want the DL4 and the RE202. But it makes me wonder. When is Boss or, you know, even Fender with their pedals or Strymon, they do creative, cool stuff. Mm-hmm. When are, is somebody like Boss, that's the gold standard classic pedal maker, when are they going to do something new that's like a brand new effect or something that breaks a mold? Because right now it's all improving on the classics. Or do they ever have to do that? I don't know that they ever have to do it. I think they will do it, and I think the timing will be as we emerge out of the pandemic. You know, there's been so much focus on, uh, right now, the limitations of production and and getting things through the supply chain into stores and sold, that there was not a lot of opportunity to experiment if you're an established company. Now, if you're a small company, you can be a little bit more agile. I mean, that's how it always is in every industry period, right? You can experiment and you can do stuff because there's less on the line, so to speak. And if you create a product and you sell 10 of it a year, fine. Yeah. If you're boss and you make a pedal and you sell 10 of them in the year, that, done. <laughs> that, that's, well, it, it's a disruption to everything in production. It's a disruption to everything in marketing. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can't make a bet, particularly in a time like we've been in with COVID, that you d- that's a big question mark. Yeah. So if you're reissuing a pedal that's a blast from the past that you know people are going to like, that's a sure thing, right? You can devote the marketing time and you can devote the production to do it. And it's not a risk in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. right? As people are 
gobbling up these petals. So I think as we, the further we get from the pandemic, and you know, if Fauci's saying we're post-pandemic, I'm going to say we're post-pandemic, right? Um, and we are. We have. I'm not going to get on this soapbox, but. Uh, you know, the pandemic was there is no treatment. There is no vaccine. Uh, we don't know what to do. And none of those things are the case anymore. So despite what's going on in, in Ukraine and you know, sh- shutdowns in China, we are getting to better supply. And as that, the more and more that improves, then you're going to see in pedals specifically larger companies experimenting. Yeah. I will tell you this about pedals. I think the whole cottage industry of effects pedals scares guitar builders electric guitar builders and i know this because paul reed smith said so the challenge is if you can have your if the guitar is just a controller yeah right then the value of the guitar decreases i think that's fair but something interesting that i learned today i could get you know, an incredible amp and a bunch of pedals, and mm-hmm. I cannot make the Stratocaster that I, I own sound like the Tomatillo pickups that right. I played today. I mean, there's something to be said about... Well, that's, that's the ever-going message that we're always trying to say. Yeah. Is that what you start with matters. Yeah. No matter how, my, no matter how much you pile on. Yeah what you started with matters because the the thing that you're actually coming in contact with the guitar however you're working in there will affect how you're playing Mm -hmm. and so i played that it was a custom shop 58 strat incredible guitar um hearing how the pickups responded changed my attack on the guitar and then everything comes after dialing in the best tone for the amp if I had pedals, you know, it wouldn't have needed any, but you can dial in your delay and reverb, all that stuff. But the the pickups, the build on the guitar, the feel of the neck, so much more important. I do think that there will be a time when, right now I think that brands are trying to make small package versions of what you and I can get out of our best guitar and our mm-hmm. best amp, Iridium, IR200, voice print um you know cool stuff that has not been announced yet but keep your eyes open for yeah we'll talk about that later because i'm excited anyway i think the opposite can happen because like you play through uh logic no i used to when do you what do you what daw do you use in oh live when i'm recording yeah. so i don't use one in the live performance anymore uh, no because you got i played through a boogie you got mark. the best but you Five. have you have experience using plugins. Yeah, live. I used to uh, I used to play through, so Apogee, which mm-hmm. is a great you know mm-hmm. hardware company. They make this uh, floorboard controller called the Geo that I used to own, and I would plug my guitar into the Geo. The Geo specifically controlled main stage, and main stage is just a live version of Apple's Logic. Which, if people know the history, used to be eMagic's Logic. Apple bought this com- German company that made this great DAW so that they'd have their DAW. And so, uh, since it's effectively Logic, it's just reskinned for live performance. Um, I know a lot of keyboard players that still use it because the keyboard plugins are fantastic and the ease of use is so much better than most keyboard interfaces that you have yeah. uh, for workstations. But um, so, yeah, I used that. And what was great about it is I had access to. Uh, all of the amps that were in Logic, any plugin I wanted, any of the pedals that were in Logic, any plugin I wanted, um, and there were some really good ones. And if you dialed it in, a little secret if anyone does this, I didn't use the amp reverb or pedal reverbs. I used the studio plugin reverb, and you got the best reverb ever. You know, yeah. if you wanted a cool reverb. Um, but the, and the reason I moved away from it was not because of sound. It was actually because of when I wanted to make a change, yeah. I had to control the trackpad on my MacBook Pro yeah. to manipulate n- virtual knobs mm-hmm. on either a pedal or or, a, or an amp. That's the thing, because like, there's a reverb that I love in um, like on the UA interface, the AKG reverb that's based on the studio version, mm-hmm. and it's the most beautiful, lush-sounding reverb. 
And I would love to find a way, and I think pedal companies, instead of trying to get everything else in the box, um, you know, and making it like an impulse response, something like that, I think we might see getting the ease and, you know, all the capabilities of affecting your sound in a DAW or, you know, with plugins and all that, a little, you know, easier to control on a board. And there's Mm -hmm. certain little things that when I've been recording, I can only get certain weird sounds that I do think go towards that Chase Bliss kind of like new, you know, can't really get on analog gear. I want to be able to get those sounds out on a board and be able to use it in a live performance. Um, And so I think, I don't really know what that looks like, but I'm sure that UA and Chase Bliss and all these companies are. Yeah, and you on, look you at know. the you look at the new floorboard options from Boss. Yeah, uh, that they're coming out with. Uh, not only are the the digital effects are getting better, the interfaces are improving, which I think is actually more important mm-hmm. uh, because the the digital effects have been there for a while. Yeah. I still I will say this: I still don't think digital is a one to one representation of analog. I think on recordings, you generally can't tell the difference in a good mix anyway, because yeah. you're going to have compression. Um, and I think in a live performance, most of your audience is never going to notice the difference anyway. But I know the difference if yeah. I'm playing in an amp versus if I'm playing in like a floorboard effects or something. Yeah. Because the, the, it's, the sound's just different. An organic analog, like you can, you can hear your fingers on the strings. And it moves the air different. It moves like it, it you can does. feel it, it through your feet different. You it's know? absolutely different. But in a recording, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know? And so, usually, I should say, it doesn't really matter unless you have a really stripped down organic recording. Um, so, I think what's going to happen is because a lot of it's already there, the components are going to continue to get smaller. So, we're going to see things like what you're talking about uh, the processing power that's being put into like a UA pedal right now mm-hmm. will shrink down to the point where UA can do a multi effects, right? And have all of that quality in there. Yeah. As long as the interface gets easy to use, then it's more v- available. Of course, you still need speakers to play out of and all that other stuff. So, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's coming. It will continue to, to adapt smart companies, you know, going back to your, your original question of Gibson, Gibson bought boogie, which was, I think a smart move because that is an amp company that admittedly appeals to a similar demographic that they have. They uh, they will probably do the typical thing they do with their guitars, which is they will do reissues of famous boogie amps from the past, which boogie's already done, right? Um, you can have your your amp with a quilted maple cabinet from boogie in their custom shop. It still sounds like a Mark V or, or yeah. whatever, um, but it looks prettier. It can match your guitar. You can get the same burst or whatever. Yeah. They will still appeal to that audience. Um, they are now coming out with their pedals, right? They're getting into that game with Maestro, right? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the name of the pedal, right? They're doing Maestro, okay. yeah. Uh, what, it confuses me because they have the they had that brand of Maestro, which was like the cheaper than Epiphone and terrible yeah. guitars. Um, they, they, right now, they seem to just be embracing the analog world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might work out well for them. There may be what, what you what's difficult to determine, Cooper, is if at some point ten years from now there's a dramatic pushback from a generation of guitar players that go the other way and yeah. embrace analog. Just like remember when every other pedal was true bypass. Oh yeah, dude. Th- this is how these things go. You know, it's interesting though. Korg, on the other hand, is going full on digital. Yep. And Op6, Wave State, Mod Wave that all came out over the last year and a half or so. It's like all in. You can only get this sound on digital stuff and look how organic it can be. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's, you know, and I I would love to see, obviously, RE202, it's a digital pedal. It's not like you have tape going around inside the box. Right. But it's like embrace what you can only get from digital and let's see what happens, you know. I'm excited to see how this... Because it always starts in the electric guitar world, how it goes into the acoustic guitar world. We've done videos on people using pedals with acoustic guitar. Doing that voice print video that we did with the LR bags, that to me, to this point, has been the very best implementation of digital 
studio recording technology and effects technology yeah. for acoustic guitars. I mean, just bar none. Now imagine yeah. that gets implemented on board on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. In a very stealthy way. Or on an electric guitar where it sounds supernatural. And yeah. I don't mean like supernatural, but like very natural. You yeah. know? Um, Make your classic vibe sound like a custom shop. Yeah. I, I, you know, so some of this is slippery slope. Some of this is manufacturers won't do because it, they feel it diminishes the product um, or waters it down in some way or makes it unnecessary. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we have to at some point come to, to the realistic terms that manufacturers in some cases will build to a price point and then they won't give you features till you pay for more because that's how they make more money. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a brave new world coming as far as Gibson's concerned. I hope they do figure it out yeah. um, from a marketing standpoint. They would do well to look at some of their other brands never do a play authentic video ever again um, and really invest more in their marketing and in their manufacturing. If they continue to have manufacturing issues, we get Gibsons in that are stellar and we still will occasionally get a Gibson in that has issues with it. That in this day and age shouldn't happen. Cannot happen. My last thing that I'll bring up is have you watched their, uh, the collection videos? Some. Yeah. I know. I know what you're thinking, but I do appreciate. I watched Joe Bonamassa's. I mm-hmm. watched uh, Dweezil Zappa, and um, Dweezil's was cool. It's so cool, like all the history there and stuff. Weird stuff, yeah. But I appreciate. See, if they want to, if they do that SG that had like been remade, the Piezo pickup. Yeah, they did a reissue of that SG like it was before it got broken. They should do it like it is now. Yeah. Get weird. That, but I appreciate in those videos, they throw fenders in there. They talk mm-hmm. about them. They're happy to say that they're fantastic. Well, Mark Agnesi's been like, I think he did a video or photograph where he's in his cubicle or whatever at Gibson with a telly. Yeah. You know? So they're guitar yeah. fans, period. I do like the fact that um, who, Mike Campbell, Heartbreakers. Yeah, yeah. They, I watched that video the other day. And he was pulling out guitars, and he's like, I'm I'm not quite sure what this one is. And Mark Ignisi looks at it for two seconds. He's like, oh, that's a uh, 37L4. Like, he just, yeah. know, I mean, it's cool to see that kind of thing. Still appeals to collectors, old school. It's like, take some of that, talk to, you know, bring them back, make them something new, something cool. I think the Dweezil stuff is so cool, seeing how he and his dad both just, like, tore up guitars yeah. and made them weird. We could like tap on them and it, you yeah, that's cool. But yeah, I that was my Gibson thing. It was one simple question. I'm glad that we dove in a little bit because quite a bit. Yeah. Do I have opinions? Yes, I do. Oh yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I'll try to stray away from what's wrong with Gibson the next time we speak. Yeah, you know, I I, I will say this to end it up. I and I don't want to beat up on Gibson. I'm glad Gibson's back. They went through bankruptcy. They had uh, you know, leadership changes. I think some of that's still going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had a change of CEO and, and stuff, but I think there continues to be changes. I will go on the record of saying that when JC became the CEO of Gibson, I hoped for more dramatic changes at a faster pace than we've seen. They have made changes. I'd like to see more changes. I like to see it take place faster. From the outside looking in, not having to deal with all the structure and the bureaucracy and everything that goes along with a company of their size, um, I, I can see a lot of issues very plain. Yeah. And that might not be uh, as apparent, or there may be a lot of complicated issues as to why it takes longer to change. But you know, you know, the thing I don't want is a historic established brand like them to just become irrelevant um, or to be mismanaged. I think they were mismanaged for many years. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad to see, I love, I love my Gibson guitar. There's Gibsons I still want. Um, and so, and I think, you know, a company that has those resources, if they can find, and here's the, here's the real difficult point, finding somebody that will begin creating fresh new ideas that are bankable enough to put money behind. Yeah. That, then you can look for 
the artists. If all they do is stick the instruments they have right now into artists' hands, eventually that reaches a critical mass. Yeah. You know, so that's that's the that's the secret and it's not a, it's not an easy uh answer for them Gibson or martin hits, yeah martin same thing oh, right yeah. they, the reason i was so excited when they came out with the sc13e it was dramatically different there was somebody there who came up with a fresh and new idea that they felt was bankable enough to put production and marketing dollars behind and it paid off for them yeah so they should continue down those roads uh taylor got lucky finding andy powers yeah i mean bob's talked about it to say, eventually I need a successor or everything becomes a build by committee. And then finding someone as talented as Andy who will then say, yes, I'll join your company uh, as a lifetime commitment. Yeah. That's hard, you yeah. know. Yeah, Gibson needs an Andy Powers for sure. Yeah, every most companies do. Uh, well, for guitar, if you have a company like a guitar company, right, uh, where it's very individualistic, right, it's not a car, it appeals to a specific musician who's going to be playing. It's an intimate relationship. If you go to build by committee, you typically get a watered-down product. Yeah. If you have an individual, it's going to be more most polarizing, but that's generally where you have the best instruments mm -hmm. um, that appeal to specific people, and that's the hard thing. Every one of these companies started with a single person designing the stuff. Yeah. So that's, that's my hot take. I like that hot take. Uh, and I I like that hopefully one or two people stuck around and for the duration. With us. Uh, thank you for listening to the fretboard confessional. Uh, just it's nice to have Chris back in here talk about you know. Good to be back. And we're gonna we're gonna dive in even further. Um, next week we'll be talking about what's going on with Rickenbacker. Ricky. Ricky. Um, Chris, do you have any final thoughts? No. Glad to be back on the podcast. Look oh, yeah. More. We're back. We're back. All right. And if y'all need anything, you know, it's alamomusic.com. How's it going, guys? We're gonna... <clears throat> so we'll see y'all on the next one. We appreciate you listening. Have a good one. Peace. Peace.